Hello there. You're listening to 10 Questions, where we discuss the wet plate collodion process and the photographers that create these unique images known as ambrotypes and tintypes. I'm your host, Chad Shryock, wet plate photographer for Pork Pie Photography, based in Fort Collins, Colorado. In each episode, I've asked a modern-day practitioner to sit down with me and talk about how they got involved with this vintage process, share some information on their gear and studio, and provide some valuable insights into their creative process. So whether you're just beginning to dabble your toes in the collodion ethers, or you're a seasoned silver bath expert, hang on and see what develops with 10 questions. In this episode, I'm sitting down with a veteran of the process that's been learning, experimenting, and creating images not only in wet plate, but many of the other alternative photographic processes that exist. I know this photographer from an image I first saw in 2015 from a self-portrait that he took back in 2007, but his journey into wet plate goes well beyond a decade before that. Based in Portland, Oregon, I'd like to welcome Jody Ake to 10 Questions. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, Jody, I, I really do appreciate you uh, being on the podcast and, and sharing what you've been up to lately. Uh, we've, we've never met, but uh, I kind of know you as that somber-looking guy on page 451 in my copy of the book of Alternative <laughs> Photographic Processes. Uh, yeah, the Christopher James book. Exactly, yeah. It's a great book. Yep. Uh, you are very well-studied in the art of photography. You majored in photography at the College of Santa Fe, uh, you've got a master's in photography from the University of Oregon. Uh, I see that you also had spent some time working in New York exploring wet plate, and you're currently in Oregon. Yes, that is correct. Okay. So did you know from an early age that you wanted to be a photographer? Uh, I didn't want to be a photographer to begin with. Um, I was always into the arts, especially like in high school. <clears throat> um, I was a pretty poor student, except that I really enjoyed the art classes. Okay. Um, I originally went to school in Santa Fe, this very, very small liberal arts college called the College of Santa Fe. Unfortunately, it's no longer around. And I went for sculpture. Interesting. Uh, I took photography classes in high school, and I had a camera, but it wasn't really my thing. Uh, I enjoyed it, but I felt like... Uh, a 3D kind of medium was more what I was interested in. And I didn't really start taking photography seriously till like my sophomore year of college. And it kind of came around in a, in a strange way that like I, my sophomore year, the first semester of my sophomore year of college, I got into a pretty bad car accident and I physically couldn't work in sculpture anymore. Um, and so photography was like the only other medium I really enjoyed or I was had any sort of understanding of. Nice. And I thought, you know, like I could carry a camera around, well, you know. I'm not sure if it's coincidental or not, but uh, Frederick Scott Archer was a sculptor as well, I believe. Yes, he was. <laughs> uh, there's some great photographs of him with these little sculptures that he made, some of the very early photographs of his. So just, just to let you know, I mean... Whenever I was in the second grade, I wanted to be a semi-truck driver. So, mm -hmm. you know, I guess that's, you know, influence of uh, Smokey and the Bandit or something at that time. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> had, um, had you played around with the process before you started working on your thesis? Um, well, let's skip forward. Like, yeah, to, it's, I'm in graduate school. It's 1997. And um, I was looking for something more than just kind of straight photography. Um, my thesis was, was, well, it goes back, it was kind of based on my own like mortality. Like I had mentioned earlier, I was in this bad car accident and uh, I never really dealt with everything that went along with it. And so in grad school, I finally started like dealing with what had happened and how my recovery was going and that turned into like my thesis and my thesis was a series of self-portraits exploring my own mortality 
and it was going pretty decently well, but I just couldn't find a way to express the chaos and the destruction that I was trying to process. Um, I was shooting four by five film. I was, uh, you know, making straight silver gelatin. I had experimented with, uh, like some platinum and some like Van Dyke and Sanotype, all the normal kind of printing processes you can do. Okay. Uh, alternative processes now, and none of them just really fit. And, uh, I tried to make my own like, uh, silver gelatin glass plate negatives. I thought, um, having that kind of layer of medium between like the image and the camera, like, you know, film has a certain look. So I thought like, well, glass plate negative could have a different kind of look and it could have some distressing that would happen organically. And I couldn't get it to work. And then one day I like stumbled onto an amber type and, and I was like, I, I knew what a tintype was and I knew what a daguerreotype was and I had seen them, but like I literally was in the university's uh, library and their like special selection and found a box full of old ambrotypes. And there was a portrait of a man and it had come out of the case, like classic basic portrait. It was just sitting, you know, in a studio somewhere and the asphaltum on the back had started to disintegrate. Okay. Yep. So it had this great like positive negative and like the varnish was chipped and like all this stuff was on the surface of the plate. And I was like, like this, like that was it. I was like, that's, that's what I'm looking for. You know, that is what I'm missing from my process. And uh, I just kind of dived into doing research on collodion and I decided like, this is, this is what I wanted to try to do. Nice. You, uh, you've mentioned that at that time, of course, this is, for the most part, pre-internet, right? I yes. Mean, at, at that time. Pre-Google. Pre-Google, yeah, for sure. That, that there really weren't any online resources other than maybe a Civil War reenactment message board that you kind of got pulled into, right? Yes, that was it. <laughs> um, I, and I, I tell this story to people when I, when I teach, and, you know, like, it's not like today. Like, there wasn't YouTube. There was not Facebook. Um, the only information on the internet was this Civil War reenactors group that talked about web play. And there's maybe 20, 30 active members of that group. Um, so this is 97. Yeah, there was information was very, very hard to come by. So, so were you able to, uh, I guess, glean enough between the libraries that you had access to plus this message board to figure out how to actually do the process on your own? I, I, I got enough information to do it very poorly. Um, luckily, the university had a lot of resources for me. Um, I had like my own dark room and I had my own studio. I had access to larger cameras that I didn't own. The library was able, was a great place to research. I was able to to do some like interlibrary loan stuff and find some books that talked about the history of, of wet play. Um, I didn't realize at the time, but I had found a book that I own called Keeper of the Light, which is a really old alternative process book, probably from the seventies. And it had a short little chapter about wet play. So I, I went from that, um, I bugged people on the Civil War reenactor group message board for information, but it was hard. It's like I finally got enough resources together to try. Uh, and, you know, for four months, I made horrible, horrible mistakes. Um, just bad. And But there was no one to, like, talk to about. Right, right. You know, um, and the Civil War reenactor groups, like, they were, there were a lot of great people on there. Like, old schoolers, you know, and... Like old, old schoolers, not like today, old school, like guys who've been doing it for a really long time. And, and they really didn't want to give up their secrets because they didn't want you to show up at a Civil War reenacting uh, yep. like, event and then like steal their business. Sure. Yep. Because I had to promise them, I'm like, I'm in art school. You know, like, I do not care. I'm not going to show up in a wool suit you know, and when grow a handlebar mustache and like pretend to be a photographer from the 1850s. Right. Like, right. I have no interest in that. And, I, <laughs> and once I convinced them of that, a lot of people shared information and resources with me. But it was, 
just a complete failure almost in everything I did till I met the Ostermans. And, and they're the ones that really like showed me what I was doing wrong. Sure. So you got a hold of Mark and Franz Scully Osterman at mm-hmm. the, uh, what, the Eastman Museum there in Rochester, I guess? Or? They're in the George Eastman House in yep. Rochester. It was fall of 97 is when I found them. And I conversed with them a little bit. And then they, of course, were like, hey, well, you know, we're teaching a workshop. Uh, and I think they had taught one already in 97. And they were like, we're doing another one in 98. Uh, and it just so happened to be at the same time as my spring break. So I, I flew to New York. I spent a couple of days in New York and then went to Rochester and took a, God, I think it was a, I don't know if it was a one or a two day class. And there were like eight of us, you know, in the basement of the George Eastman house. And, uh, they were able like within, within five minutes of walking into the dark room. They were like, you know, I remember there being like, oh, well, you know, is this how you pour a plate and blah, blah, blah. And they show on everyone. And then it was my turn to pour a plate. And they're like, oh, you've got this. You've been doing this for a while. And I'm like, no, I'm doing it completely <laughs> different. Like, yeah. and they showed me in that first five minutes in the dark room, 90% of the things I was doing wrong. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, it was a just invaluable resource and experience to have for wet plate. Yeah, I mean, I think about the advantage that people coming into this practice today have with all the information that's available, and, and especially with all of the online resources that are out there, of being able to see people do this. Yeah. Uh, I, I just can't imagine what it would have been like trying to just read a book that talks about, oh, this is how you pour the clodion on the plate and, and, and actually figure out, okay, this is you're actually supposed to do that based on that limit of information <laughs> yeah it was it was hard and and I, i'm sure you've seen and most people that have done like some wet plate research have seen like the same illustrations that are probably from the 1860s right right of how to do this and there are these great drawings of hands you know holding a black glass plate <laughs> and how to pour your developer on but it's nothing like what you really do in the dark room um they're just great illustrations so i yeah, it was really, really hard. And I spent years making failures, um, trying to figure out to do the process. And it's nothing like today where there's hundreds of videos on YouTube. Yeah. I, I think about, you know, I've probably spent about six to nine months just really trying to study and absorb as much information as I could. And I don't know how many times I watched those uh, videos from the George Eastman Museum. Uh, I yeah. think it was called like the Photographic Processes series, and it has like a ten or twelve episodes, and it talks about you know Talbot and cyanotypes, and there was one maybe a eight minute episode on wet plate that you know Mark is in, and yeah. um, I just constantly watched that for a while while I was trying to decide, hey, is this something that I really want to get into or not? <laughs> All those videos are great. I I watched one just recently. Yeah. Great resources. Do you, uh, so your first plate, what, uh, who did you get signed up or was it a still life? What, what were you shooting in? Uh, they would say my, so I'm like halfway through my, my graduate thesis and it was all self portraits. So my first plates were all self portraits, um, shot in this like storeroom at the university of Oregon that I kind of claimed as my studio it was just full of junk, uh, broken enlargers and chairs and tables. And I just kind of moved in and I would work really late at night. So the smell didn't bother anyone. And my first, <laughs> all my first plates were like all kind of self-portraits. And, uh, you know, you, you would read stuff where it was like, it's only sensitive to blue light. So I was like scavenging around for fluorescent bulbs or any kind of lighting I could get. And I would, you know, set up a camera and sit in a chair and have like one light on in the room so I could see. And then I would, I would have all these lights plugged into like a surge protector and I'd, I'd lean over with my foot and turn it on and try not to move for like five minutes. Yeah. Starting with self-portraiture is, is really diving right in. I mean, that, that just adds a whole nother layer of uh, complexity to the process. It really did. And like, 
Self-portraits are never easy, I think. Like, I don't teach very much anymore, but I always had my students do a self-portrait. I think it's a, it's a great process for any artist to, to look at themselves and use themselves as a subject. But like, it's hard enough with just a film camera. Um, and you gotta remember too, this is like pre-digital. I think the university had one digital camera. So yeah, it was, it was hard, but it was, I mean, that's, everything was hard. And, and that's kind of what I was going for. I wanted to, to see how the process would work and how it captured people. And I was really kind of hoping and looking for the medium to capture more than just like photographic evidence. Um, you know, I love the history of, of, of Collodion where, you know, it was only, it was like Civil War time era, you know, you'd find these tintypes or ferrotypes or these images of, of like young men going off to war. And it was like the only image of that person probably ever that ever existed in time. Right. You know, and they would stop and get a tintype made and send it home to their like sweetheart. And then they would die in a battle. And I love like that. That's just the only visual record of this person and their life. And it just seemed like there was so much more to it. Um, I really like the history of Collodion too. Like during the Civil War, not like salted Collodion you would use on for the process, but like if you were shot on the field, often they would pour collodion over your wound because it would like seal it. And it was mostly ethanol, you know, and ether. So it was also the disinfectant. Yeah. So I loved the history of the process being connected to like the bloodiest war of our history and like the medical uses of it as well as photographically. It just, I was in a really, really dark place and my work was really, really dark, and it all fit, you know? And I really felt like Collodion could see more than what was really there. Yeah, the, the, the history and those same images of folks in, from the Civil War are what really drew me to the process as well. I, I had done a little bit of research. I was curious as to how long Collodion had actually been around before uh, it's it started its use as an agent in photography and it was really a from what I could find it was a pretty short time span I mean it was within the year that they started using collodion as that medical adhesive that somebody said well hey let's let's salt this stuff and let's start using it for photography yeah I don't think it was around very long before that and it still blows me away that like photography was ever invented at all you know, and like the daguerreotype, I'm still, I've seen it done. I have a daguerreotype of my wife and I, and I still don't understand, you know, how it works. And I'm amazed that any of this ever happened. Yeah. Jody, you seem to have a wide uh, range of genres that you photograph as far as portraits, landscapes, and still life. Do, do you find that you're drawn to a particular subject? Uh... I find I get bored with subjects sooner or later. Um, and then I move on to something else. Um, and it's also kind of process too. I don't do a lot of collodion at the moment. I do other processes, but like in the beginning, I, uh, you know, I was doing all self portraits. And then after graduate school, I moved to New York and I was still trying to do self portraits. I was still just strictly an art photographer. And then one day, someone was like, well, take my picture. And I started realizing that like what I was looking for in the self-portraits, like maybe it wasn't what I was looking for in myself. Maybe it wasn't me, maybe it was everyone else. So I started taking photographs of other people trying to see more of them. And I started doing portraits of just like my friends, the people I met in New York, it's New York. There's like 8 million people there. So you can bump into somebody. You know, Lots of interesting people there, right? Tons of interesting people. And so I really got into doing portraiture. And I was just doing my own thing. And then it's New York, so everything turns into commerce. So then it was like I got introduced to a, a booking agent at a modeling agency, you know. So then I, like all of a sudden I had, you know, hundreds of young, beautiful people that would come to my studio to sit for their portraits, you know. And then I would 
you know, meet someone interesting on the street or in a bar, and I would start doing their portraiture that way. And it kind of turned into a little, like, that's how I kind of started my career. Like, I was trying to be a photographer, and I was trying to do commercial work, but still be an artist at the same time. Right. Um, so I did a whole lot of portraiture, and then I kind of, you know, honestly, I got kind of sick of people. <laughs> you know, after a <laughs> while, I was like, I'm, I'm not seeing anything new in my portraiture work. Um, and, and, you know, and then I was like, well, I'm going to start doing still lives. Um, and at this time, too, this is like early, early 2000s, there was still like a stock photography market out there. And so, like, I had photographer friends that were making a decent living making stock images. And I'm like, well, I could do that, you know. And so I would find cool objects in New York. Like, I found a really cool wrench. I remember the first, like, real still life I did was a, a wrench, and it was, like, curved. And it was just in a box of junk on the side of the road in front of a store. And it was, like, you know, a dollar a piece. And I bought this really, really cool wrench. And it reminded me of my grandfather, who had died in, like, the eight, early, early 80s. And he had this great tool shed. And I was too young to appreciate, like, the value of a tool and to have my grandfather's tool. My brother, older than me, is smarter than me, <laughs> took a lot of that stuff, you know, and I wish I had it, but it reminded me of my grandfather. And so, like, I did a, a still life kind of the same way I would do a portrait of this wrench. And then it, I started doing still lifes for a couple of years, and I was trying to sell them the stock images. And then I would get jobs uh, to do, like, book covers with still lifes. And for me, though, as soon as it turns into commerce, it kind of loses its fun. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, and, and then I'm in New York for a while, and it's like, well, I really, really miss being in Oregon or living in New Mexico where the landscape's amazing because you're in New York. You always miss what you don't have. And then I started traveling uh, back to the Southwest and back to Oregon to do landscape work because then I was just really into landscapes for, the, for a while. So I, I find, like, I don't... I don't shoot one subject exclusively. I, I get bored with it with a subject. I move on to something else. Interesting. Um, to find something else. Yeah, that's pretty cool that you're not uh, kind of cornered yourself into a specific uh, subject. So. Yeah, I, I, I like to change things up. Yeah. What What are some of the other photographic processes that you've utilized? Um. So. Calotype, mostly, um, kind of the poor man's platinum palladium. Uh, I did a, a series recently in the last few years, and it's all been calotypes. Um, before that, really, it's, it's, been, it's been mostly like wet plate and silver gelatin. Uh, calotypes are really cool. Um, I have a really good friend here in town named Ray, Ray Bittigen, and he is super great at platinum. Um, his printing skills are amazing, but he's been doing photogravures for the last few years. Ah, uh, interesting. Okay. And I am like so hooked on that. Uh, um, he, he's he's a great artist. And he's a great friend, and he'll let me come over and he'll show me how to make a plate. And we'll pull some prints. Um, like that's that's where I'm really kind of like I love that. I'm, I'm saving up for a press. Yeah, uh, um, I, you know, like. The dream process would be like autochromes. Like I really tried to do research on autochromes. I couldn't figure out how to make it work and no one can really. I did some oratones for a while, like wet plate oratones. Yeah, I was hoping uh, you were gonna mention those. I, I, I love the look of those. I just, something about them is really uh, interesting to me. They're, they're amazing and to see original ones, uh, like Curtis Oratones, and there's another photographer, uh, Pillsbury, can't remember his first name. Uh, yeah, Oratones, they are so cool. And so I did a, I did some Oratones for a while, but I feel like the process needs to like fit the image. So um, back in like 1990, I went to Europe with uh, an ex-professor from the University of Oregon and like, uh, it was like a, we went to we went to London and then we went to Paris and we went to all kinds of these little towns in Great Britain and they did a, a original performance theatrical piece based on uh, the two writings of Dr. Faustus 
and uh, I went along as like the photographer, and I shot all these like four by five images of them, like in these like you know thousand year old cathedrals or in Castle Rising Cemetery where Archer is buried. So I went to try to find Archer's grave, and I couldn't find it. Oh. Um, okay, like it's just great stuff, and like to me, like I was like, oh, that would be those would be great for oratones. So like I made them into oratones, and then I moved on. Yeah, I'm just into processes. Like, I would love to figure out how to do Woodbury types. I'd love to do photogravures now. I stumbled onto this guy who who will take a gravure plate, and uh, instead of printing on paper, he actually pours, pours a plaster of Paris mold with the ink plate into it, and the ink transfers to the plaster. And uh, so you have a photographic image in plaster. I'm, like, I'm really kind of into that. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Have you been up to the um, the Curtis? Um, it's not really a museum, but the gallery there up in uh, Seattle. I have not. I know it's there. Um, I follow some Curtis people. Years ago, I I told my college professor, uh, his name's David Scheinbaum. Uh, I saw him at APAD in New York, and I told him I was really trying to figure out how to do oratones and. He talked to the Curtis people to try to get me some information, and they weren't interested. This is Jerry. How it was done, really. But like, uh, I haven't been up there, but the museum here in, in Portland has an original copy of, uh, of his books. Nice. And every once in a while, they'll be out on display, and I'll go look at them. They're pretty amazing. Yeah, cool. So, uh, Jody, tell us a little bit about if you have a, uh, a cur- current studio or darkroom you regularly use um i like i don't have a dedicated studio now uh in the past i did in new york i had a a studio that i worked out of and uh and for a while when i moved back to portland i had a studio to do work and i just found that i wasn't utilizing it enough so now when i do work i do most work out of my basement and my basement's kind of like a general purpose area and i'll have to like tear down one project to build a dark room to do other things. Um, nice. I'm so glad I'm not it, the only one working in my basement. Yeah, it's in my basement. I just, like, I'm, I'm busy. Um, my wife and I run a few different companies, so I, my work day is busy. And I do not have the time to dedicate to photography like I used to. And, like, I also uh, I have a side gig called In Camera Industries where I make uh, wet plate holders. And so my basement turns into like a production studio where I'm building plate holders for a while. Nice. And then I'll be like, well, I want a dark room again. So I'll tear it down for six months and build a dark room. You know, and it just kind of goes back and forth between projects. So I never, in the last five, six years, I haven't had a dedicated studio. And I wish I could, but it just, it's all time constraints now. Yep. Let's let's talk about chemicals. Uh, when you first started out, were any of the major supply houses in existence, or were you pretty much on your own with these recipes that you could track down in a book somewhere? Uh, I was on my own. Um, Bostick and Sullivan, you know, was around, and uh, I had lived in Santa Fe, so I, like obviously knew about them and stuff. But they didn't really have any Clodian stuff, and uh, I would have to call like Sigma chemicals, you know, like giant chemical suppliers and and try to talk to a service rep and uh, try to convince them, you know, that I wasn't trying to build a bomb, you know, (laughs) or I wasn't making drugs to get get anything. Uh, Ether was the hardest thing to find that that they would let a civilian get. And collodion was really hard too. Actually, I think I... I remember paying a fortune for like 100 milliliters of collodion from some random chemical place. Um, it was hard, but luckily, like also the university had a really great chemical supply kind of house in the university. And being a graduate student, I could go up and be like, you know, I'm looking for this. And they would actually have it and sell it to me. Nice. Um, that's basically like the cadmium bromides and the iodines. Uh, and like silver nitrate, but for like the ether and the collodion, I had to dig around the internet 
to find people to, to buy it from. Yeah, I take it you weren't trying to buy a potassium cyanide at that point. <laughs> no, like, um, like I kept reading, you know, about like potassium cyanide, and I was like, I could use Thixer instead. I never understood the, the the dangers of working with cyanide. To me, it wasn't worth what it did. Um, so yeah, no cyanide. Yeah. What uh, kind of photographic gear uh, do you typically use when shooting wet plate? Uh, I have a few 8x10 and 11x14 like Century studio cameras. Um, those are my main, if I'm working in a studio, Those that's what I use. I have a, uh, it doesn't really have a brand name, but it's like one of those Indian uh, brand folding cameras. Um, and it's this is like, not one of those cameras where you uh, you shoot and process everything oh, inside the camera, right? <laughs> no, no, no. It's a normal view camera, but it's made in India. Yeah. It's a knockoff of an Indian company. I can't remember the name yeah. at the moment. It starts with a V. Uh, and it's a, like an eight and a half by 15 format. So it's a banquet camera. And uh, I have an eight by 10 and a four by five, five by seven back for that that I made. And if I'm doing landscapes and shooting outside of the studio, I'll, I'll use that. And then um, those are the main cameras. And then I'll, I, I really like Voigtlander lenses. And uh, I shoot mostly Voigtlander large Petzl lenses. Nice. What about, uh, you mentioned shooting landscapes uh, for wet plate. You know, that brings on a whole nother challenge yes. as far as hauling all of the gear to be able to process the plates remotely. What does your dark box or dark room look like whenever you're traveling like that it changes most of the landscape work i've done there's there's a, a photographer here in portland his name's mark rupert uh, we went to graduate school together and he was the head of the photography department at the oregon College of arts and crafts uh, unfortunately they closed a few years ago too but it's a, it was a really cool school and i would go out there and teach and then after I teach for like a week, Mark and I would go drive around Oregon shooting landscapes for like a month. And uh, they also had a wood shop there, so I had like their, their wood department like made me a dark box. And it's just your basic box, you know, on legs, set a nice little folding table, it worked. And that, that was great if you're, on, if you're on the road for like a month. And then if I'm shooting anytime shorter than that, I'll just use a, like a cardboard box. And it works great. You just put a cloth over the front, you know, and you just put your stuff inside of this giant box and you dig inside and start working. Um, so it really kind of varies depending on the situation. Um, nice. But it, it's a lot. And it's also just makes you realize like how hardworking uh, photographers were in the 1800s. Like, you know, we would have a giant truck and we would pack it completely full with gear and camping stuff. You know, and it'd take like an hour to set up once you get somewhere, you know, and you have to realize that these people in the 1850s, 1860s, 60s were doing this with mules <laughs> in a wagon. Yeah. Like that stuff's pretty amazing. Yep. And no rubber gloves. <laughs> no rubber gloves. Uh, oh, yeah. Can you imagine that? Oh, like I gosh. can't stand the smell of fixer. Uh, and you know, if any photographer that's been in the dark room can remember getting that fixer on your hands <laughs> and it turns into this sticky, smelly mess and it never goes away. Oh, horrifying. <laughs> what about, uh, I usually ask this question a little bit differently, but I'll say if you had the chance to photograph anyone or anything, uh, what or who would it be? That's a hard one. Tom Waits? Okay. I think if like if I had a, if, if someone was like dream portrait Tom Waits probably okay. like I really really love his music uh, I think he's a visually interesting person you know if I, if I had to do a portrait yeah Tom I'd, I'd shoot Tom Waits okay um, not reached out to him though right no no <laughs> there was some like six degree of separation for a while in New York and I I tried uh, I worked with some people who worked with him, and I was like, hey, do you think, you know, you could, like, ask Tom Waits to, you know, answer my email or something? And, and they were like, no, no, no. And I was like, oh, okay. 
I'm not sure. You know, I, I've seen a few uh, celebrity portraits that have been done in wet plate, but I, I got to think that those people are used to, hey, you got five minutes to get this done and I'm out of here kind of thing. And wet plate is just not made for that, right? It's not. Um, like I've, I've photographed a few celebrities. Most of them have been very generous with their time. But yeah, I mean, most, like, if you think of your normal celebrity, they're busy and they have an entourage, you know, and they, they don't want to sit still for something that long. Um, I photographed Alan Cummings, though, and he was awesome. Nice. And it's actually one of my favorite photographs I've ever made is of him. Um, there was this really cool moment in New York where uh, I met a man in a, in a camera store and we started talking and he rented a floor in a building just like four or five blocks south of where my studio was. And it ends up he was renting one of Matthew Brady's original photo studios. And uh, he worked out of it. And so he needed some help uh, with a project he was working on. He needed help like printing these very large uh, photographs on like big Epson printers. And I kind of needed a new place to work out of, so we made a great exchange where I went and printed for him, and then he let me have access to, to Brady's old studio, and I would photograph people in it. Wow. Now that would be the place to go digging around in the attic, for sure. Yeah, I, could, I, could, I got in the basement once. It was pretty creepy. <laughs> uh, I didn't stay. But yeah, it was super cool, and I, I tried to do this project. We called, we called it like the Brady Project. And I had friends that were much more well-connected than I was to, to people in New York. And they would come in, like they would find people. And I had a friend who was friends without coming and he came in and he stayed with me for like four hours. And it was literally like me and I had an assistant and Helm in this dark drafty room in the building where Matthew Brady used to work. And, uh, yeah, that was a really, really great experience. It went on for about six months, and then the landlord decided he wanted to sell the building, so uh, I had to disappear. Wow, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It, there, there is a certain level of uh, intimacy and trust that, that really needs to take place with a subject uh, whenever you're doing this process, right? I mean, it, it does yeah. take a long time, and you know, it's, it's something that most people don't get to experience, so it's a whole different way of being photographed that... Uh, they may not know exactly what they're getting into. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, there's always that moment. I think we've all done it when we've taken a, a portrait of someone and we kind of explain to them what, what's go, what happens and what goes on and then they follow you into the dark room and they see that image, that negative image come up when you develop it and they're just always like, you know, it's so intriguing, you know, and then when it flips to a positive in the fixer, they're hooked. You know, and then they're like, normally they're like, well, I'll stay all day. You know, a lot of times they're like, I only have a couple hours and they see it and they're like, I'll be here all day if you want. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is so unique. And especially, you know, it was like early 2000s. You know, I, I think well, lots of people have seen a tintype or a contemporary amber type now. Uh, but back then it was like stepping into history. Right, right. Yep. Uh, let's see, uh, any ideas for a special plate or a series that you would like to do, but maybe haven't had the time or energy to uh, accomplish it yet? I've been working on and off on a project five, six years now, um, but it hasn't really come together completely. Like, I like, I, I try, I, I mentioned earlier, like a lot of, I don't make a lot of work recently and it's mostly time constraints and uh, I have a really bad back. Like I can't really go spend a month on the road taking landscapes again and lugging around, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of equipment. I'm getting too old and my back is really not in good shape. So it's really hard for me to do that kind of work. So about seven years ago, six years ago, I actually started trying to make my own computer generated 3D landscapes. Okay. Cause I was like, I is can't this, get out there. This is like, using some of the like uh, AI type technology that's in the news well, right now. 
it's pre-AI technology, okay. but kind of similar concepts. There are some programs that like uh, movie studios will use, you know, and they say, like, oh, we're on Mars, you know, and they'll generate in a computer a landscape that the actors you know, green screen act in front of. And uh, for me, I got to the point where I was frustrated that I couldn't go out you know, I couldn't go to Shiprock, New Mexico, which I love that place, and I can't get out there. So I'm like, well, why don't I create it in, in the computer? Because I love technology. And then from there, I can create a positive or a negative and then shoot that and make a plate of it. Of course, when I started this like six years ago, the, the, the processing power... Uh, to generate an image like that was quite a bit, and I didn't really have a computer that worked well. Uh, the software is really, really complicated, and I don't always absorb it all. Uh, so, like, I've been working on that for a while, and it kind of turned into me generating my own landscapes and then photographing them and turning them into amber types. And then, um, which is interesting to me because it's kind of this like unca uncanny valley thing. It's like what's real and what isn't. And like some people have criticized them, be like, well, they're not really photographs. And I'm like, well, why aren't they photographs? Like, what's a photograph? You know, like to me, there's no truth in photography. It's all a lie. So I'm just creating another lie. But it's like, you know, I created a, a landscape and there's a mountain and there's some, you know, stuff there's some trees and like and then i photograph them and then you can look at them and be like well, are they real or are they not and most people don't realize they're not real they just think they look a little different you know and i'm interested in that like like what what kind of information do you need to have to think that something is real and is anything really real and, and yeah, i'm just i'm interested in that kind of play um so i've been working on that for a while and then it turned into like um like video game technology got better so like I have an Xbox and it, it, it works in 4K. So I would literally buy games that I thought were visually interesting and I would go through the game and a lot of the games now have like a photo mode where it stops the game and you can move around a virtual camera within the game and do captures. Right, yep. So I would buy games and I would go in as a photographer and play the game. You have to like kill all the zombies before you could take a picture because like <laughs> if you're trying to take a picture you're getting attacked by zombies so like right. i'd play the game i've always been into games and like i would photograph these scenes out of video games and then i would make a digital negative and then i would make calotypes from them and i always and like i was like oh this is kind of cool it's they don't look completely real but like you're holding an actual paper calotype so you think it's real and it's I love that play, and then uh, I showed them at like Photo La Cita a couple of years ago, and then some lawyers. I talked to some lawyers, and they all said I was like breaking copyright laws, <laughs> left and right. So I've gotten back to trying to just create my own digital landscapes, but I haven't gotten very far because it's it's really it's a time constraint. Um, yeah, it seems like that's a lot of the same. Uh legal discussions that are going on with some of the uh, AI programs today, right? You know, how it's collecting yes. all of this huge database of images and, and kind of piece parting them together as, as however it, it thinks it should go together. But, you know, there's still that creativity that someone had whenever they posted whatever image up on the inter internet years ago. Yeah, and like, I think AI is interesting uh, I haven't played around with it that much. If there was some way to, to, to use it to my advantage in this kind of project, I probably would. Except I do think I'm a little more aware of like copyright issues now. And I do think uh, there's some issues now that like if, if you use AI to create something, like who actually owns that image. So, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to do more research on that. Yeah. You mentioned calotypes. Have you taken any wet plate images of some of these landscapes? Like, do you would yes. you print print them out and then set up a camera and, and actually create a, a plate from that? Yeah, that's how they started, and and they they work they work really well. Like like I really love collodion, but I also 
I feel like colloding has caused some health issues for me. Like my lungs are not good. And that's years of being stupid, but like it's also years of like collodion and ether exposure. It's really made my lungs sensitive. So when I shoot in, if I work in collodion, I have to have like major ventilation, or I'll wear a a, a respite, a respite like a, a mask with charcoal filters and stuff to try to protect my lungs. Sure. Yep. Um, so it's not like I can just go downstairs and shoot a wet plate. I have to be prepared for it. So I don't do a lot of collodion at the moment, mostly just because of my health. Right. Uh, and calotypes were just easier health-wise, you know? And then it made me realize, like, how much I really hated standing in a damp, dark room, <laughs> you know, uh, processing prints anymore. Like, it really... I, I did enjoy it like I used to. Um, and so once the project was kind of over, I moved on from that. Okay. Which is kind of leading me towards, like, photogravure and stuff, for more photomechanical processes that keep me away from, like, the fixer fumes or ether or cyanide. Um, and it's mostly just health, health reasons. Yep, understandable. Like, collodion, like, I don't think, like, a lot of people will work in collodion and then they'll feel kind of crappy afterwards. I don't think a lot of people realize that it can be really, really bad for your health. Uh, prolonged ether exposure is not good for your lungs. So, anyone listening, be careful out there. Careful. Use your fan in the dark room. Yeah, sure. lots of fans. <laughs> Jody, I'm, I'm going to read a quote from Christopher James's book that does mention you. So, uh, Today, there is an ever-growing community of photographic artists using the wet plate collodion process as their primary means of image translation and expression. Their work is particularly meaningful because it incorporates the traditions and characteristics of the process while addressing the contextual and conceptual trends of contemporary visual expression. Several of the prominent practitioners and innovators in this select group are John Coffer, Eskel Stevens, Joni Sternbach, Franz Scully-Osterman, Mark Osterman, Sally Mann, Will Dunaway, Jody Ake, David Emmett Adams, and Ian Rudder. Now, when you hear your name being listed in that, that grouping, what, what, what's going through your mind? Uh, you know, when I read that the first time, I think I, like, I probably teared up. <laughs> like, seriously, like, being just mentioned in the same paragraph as as someone like Sally Mann, who was such an influence on me as a young photographer, like before she started doing collodion, you know, it was just like, yeah, like that's, you know, how do you, I don't even know what to say. You're just like, wow. Cause I'm to me, you know, like, like I've been doing collodion a long time and I have a little bit of a name and, you know, I do some shows, I'm in a couple of museums, but I never consider myself to be, like, a successful artist, you know? Like, I work a lot and just in solitude, and I just kind of do my thing, and to have someone like Christopher James just even put you in the same categories as, the, as those artists, it's, there's nothing more flattering. There's no greater honor than that. Yeah, I mean, yeah it's... I got to think that you are one of a very few special people that were around at just the right time that this process so easily could have been lost to history, I think. I mean, yeah. there were so few people uh, that were act actually practicing this or, or even knew anything about it. And, and to be able to pick up the mantle and, and continue it on and, and hear you know, 20 years later, there's almost an explosion of collodion photographers that are out there. Yeah. I, I think that you got to be somewhat proud of, hey, I, I was at least able to, to carry the torch for a little bit longer. Uh, yeah, uh, totally. Like, like th there was not a lot of people working in this process in 97, 98. Um, I, I remember like taking the class from the Ostermans and being like, how many people are doing this? 
And I think they told me, like, you know, maybe 30, you know? And I was just like, it's such an amazing experience to see someone make one and then to make it yourself and just be like, there's only 30 people, you know? <laughs> like, really, in the entire world who, like, really kind of know how this works. And, and I could, I, maybe I came up with that number. I don't remember what they told me. It was not a lot of people. Right. You know, and I, I felt, I mean, I was, all, I mean, I'm, I was young. I was in my 20s. I felt special and entitled, I'm sure, on many levels. But I was like, you know, it felt like I was diving into history and something magical, you know, like, yeah, I felt like I was unearthing information that was mostly lost to people. Now, of course, there are people at museums like the Ostermans and who knew and will always know vastly more things than I ever will photographically. But it felt pretty special at the time. Because I had even talked to like the guy who taught like photo history at the university. Like, he, he didn't really know how it worked. You know? Like historians didn't know or hadn't seen the process, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm able to do this, and, and people wouldn't believe me. The There's this, this great story where, like, uh, I went to Paris in 2000 with that performance art group I had mentioned earlier, and uh, on the train from London to Paris, there was a magazine, and it had a little article about like the oldest camera store in current, you know, production for the last, whatever, 150 years or something. And like this, the oldest camera store, and it's in this little area of Paris. And I was like, I want to go there. And uh, being a friend found it. And I went in and asked them, like, like, I'm looking for a brass lens. I'm looking for a Petzl, you know, like, I'm, I'm looking for something special. And there was this giant lens on the, the top shelf. And I was like, I want to see that. And they're like, no, you don't want to see that. You know, here, look at this. Look at this little lens, you know. And I was like, no, 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 no. I need, I'm doing big, big. I'm shooting 8 by 10 11 by 14 I need a big lens. Like, show me that giant lens up there. And the guy wouldn't show it to me. And I had to, like, explain to him that, like, no, I'm, a, like, I'm not a collector. Like, I'm an artist, and I'm working with in wet plate collodion and he's like no you're not and i know i am like i'm looking and i'm shooting this stuff and this guy it's, it was so weird it's so cinematic to me in my memory like it was like the beautiful french camera store you know and there was like a spiral staircase in it and this older gentleman came walking down the staircase in a beautiful suit you know very french man and he was like He's like, why do you want that? Why do you want to see that lens? And I was like, I'm shooting wet plate. He goes, tell me how you shoot wet plate. And I explained <laughs> it to him. And he was like, so you're actually doing this? And I was like, yes. And then he was like, you know, Giuseppe, show him the lens. Really? He pulls down this, you know, giant Voigtlander Petzl. And I was like, this is it. You know, and I had to explain to them that what I was doing and like step by step how to make a wet plate image before they would show me the lens. <laughs> you know, because they wouldn't, they just didn't, no one believed me that I was doing it. Right. Yeah, it's special. I still have the lens. It's my favorite lens. It's a Voigtlander Petzl. It's like a 14 inch uh, focal length. It's giant. It's huge. I love it. It's great. Nice. Um, is that, where all yeah. the, is that where all the good lenses are there in uh, France? They were, they were, it was in France. Uh, there's quite a bit in America now, but that was the, like the first giant lens. And it really kind of changed everything. Yeah. But, but yeah, it felt special at that time, like working in the process and digging through archives to find information and experimenting. It's not like today whatsoever. Yeah. You, uh, you mentioned Sally Mann. Uh, th this is a little bit of a tricky question uh, because, you know, I'm sure that you and your work are, are an inspiration to many of the folks that are listening, but who are some of the other photographers that have inspired your work over the years? Joel Peter Whitkin, um, Jerry Yulesman, Jan Saldak. I love Curtis. You know, there's a lot of history to, to, to him. And, like, being in the Northwest a lot, Pacific Northwest, like, I, I 
like there's there's something that feels like his home. Yeah. You know, I really really liked Curtis, but like to me, like as a young art student, like photography to me was never about documentation. Like I never carried a camera around with me everywhere I went. To me, photography was about like fantasy or non-reality. Um, and like Witkin to me captured this dark, you know, this this darkness and this kind of relig religious iconography, uh, you know, I've, and, and I've never seen anything like that uh, as a 20 year old kid, you know, walking into a gallery for the first time and seeing that work really kind of blew me away. And I thought the same thing with Jerry Yolesman. It's this, this you know, pre-Photoshop, uh, how he was able to make these composites. Like, I've, yeah, I was always into the, the non-truth of photography. So those, those guys really influenced me. Um, Sally Mann, of course, because like, you know, the, the pictures of her family are amazing. Emma Gowan, that guy, that guy's awesome. Joyce Tennyson, I really, really liked her early work and her like, powerful uh, portraits of women. But those are all like, you know, people that I've admired since the 90s or, or the 80s and like contemporary photographers uh, like Chris McCaw, I think is doing some really amazing stuff. Uh, my friend Ray that I mentioned earlier, his photo reveres platinum work is amazing. He inspires me to do more work because this guy just works constantly and his work's like the opposite of mine it's all just beautiful you know i feel like mine's kind of dirty and ugly at times um <laughs> yeah i mean there's so much work out there now and the internet allows you to see so much stuff right it's hard to even keep track of who's doing what these days i have a a somewhat funny curtis story just because i have I did not have a photographic education at all. You know, I went to engineering school and kind of happened into this as just something that kind of drew me into it. But I went into a, a used bookstore here in uh, Fort Collins, and um, I was just kind of poking around. I was checking out some of the, trying to find some photography books because this was in probably 2015, and I was still kind of in this learning phase about, hey, what, what is wet plate? For a while, I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, daguerreotypes, I'd like to do that. But then I figured out, wow, it, that is so expensive on a per plate basis. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go to wet plate. So I walked in there, and I'm looking around, and, and the, uh, the woman that was kind of running the shop, she's like, can I help you with anything? And I said, well, I'm, I'm looking for uh, any books on photography, you know. And she's like, well, you know what? I've got this book over here, and it's about this guy named Edward Curtis. It's called Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher. You should check this out. So I ended up buying that book, and that's how I was exposed to Curtis was just by some happenstance event at a, at a used bookstore mm -hmm. and just fell in love with, with his work. I mean, just amazing the you know reading about his, his history and life story as to how much effort he put into to doing what he was doing there was was really amazing. Yeah, he's, you know, I was exposed to his work, like in college, like Dick photo history stuff. Um, and also living in New Mexico, there's a large native population and we'd see a lot of work like that in town. And I, and I didn't appreciate it much till I got older and started learning more about his history and how connected he is to the, to the Northwest. And being here in the Northwest, it's like, you, know, you can feel it. And, uh, yeah, no, it's pretty amazing, a story to his. And, and like, I, I don't know, I'm like, his oratones to me are just, they're just absolutely beautiful. If you see them in person, they're amazing. And every once in a while, like, he pops up in my world. It was like, uh, I was going through, like, my Facebook memories the other day. And, like, when, I remember one day I was, like, walking home and I was like thinking about photography and being like frustrated that I don't have the time to do more photography. And in front of my house on the sidewalk was a postcard of Curtis. And it was an image of, uh, uh, I, I can't remember the name of it, but it was like, you know, a, it was a chief in the full headdress, like like on a, on a horse. And the horse was like drinking from a stream. 
and it just was laying in front of my house. And I was like, God, that's just like the photo God's telling me like to get to work. You know, <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, I don't have time to do this. My back hurts and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I got to get back to work. And then like there it was, like just get back to work. Just that uh, serendipitous event that, uh, that happens and it's like, wow. Yeah, I love those. I love those. I love it when it happens. The chaos comes together to show you something. And yeah. uh, I love those moments. Jody, I've seen you as someone that uh, helps out with a lot of troubleshooting on many of the online groups. And, and I you know, appreciate that someone of your experience is, is out there still trying to help educate people and, and work through issues that they have. What motivates you to keep giving back to the new people that are just coming into the practice? Um, Cause I, it, it I, sounds like that, that was not your experience, right? I mean, you, no, you dealt the, with a lot of people that were keeping the, the secret. <laughs> yeah. The civil war community did not want to give up the secrets. And, uh, you know, I really had to convince them that I wasn't after their job before they would help me. But once, you know, I, I met some amazing people back then. I don't want to say like all civil war reenactors are jerks, but like, you know, I, some people really, really helped me out. Old school people that have been doing this a lot longer than me. <clears throat> and, but like, you know, Facebook is a, is a good time waster and it's also a great resource. And I, you know, I, I'll see somebody ask a question and then a lot of times I'll see people answer it and for what I believe is not the correct way. And, and bad information is, is worse than no information. And so, you know, sometimes I do feel like, oh, I'm a, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. Let me tell you how I do it. And it, you know, it, it feels good to help people, especially when they're genuine and they're like excited and they're having a simple problem that this is a simple answer. But that might not be simple to them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just try to, I try to help when I can, and I, I try not to get into like Facebook arguments that happen a lot, um, and internet arguments. So like, yeah, I just try to help. I feel like Collodian is a special community, even though it's what ten thousand people now. Probably, you know, there's a lot of work going on, and I try to help when I can, and. And I, I, I kind of feel like an educator at times, and I'm really not a good teacher. So, like, I don't teach really much anymore, but, like, I feel like I need to help because uh, so many people helped me. Yeah, that's, that's great. Do, have you ever thought about how your experience would have been different uh, if you were to start in Collodian today with, you know, all the information that's have kind of freely available? I, I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> like... Um, I, like, I loved the, the R&D of it back then. Like, I really was like, what if I had an extra gram of potassium nitrate? Like, what's going to happen? You know, I loved figuring out my own way. And I loved that, like, it was kind of an almost dead process. Today, I probably wouldn't have done it, uh, honestly. The, the uh, challenge just wouldn't be there, right? Yeah, I don't do anything easy. <laughs> I, I don't know I look back, I don't... Like, I, 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 like I, I own a digital camera. I don't use it. I use it for work. You know, a digital workflow is, is boring. Like, inkjet prints are, are, are boring to me. I can't make them look as good as I want. And, like, it, yeah, I've always do things the, the hard way. Because on some level, it just makes it feel better. And, you know, like, Collodion is so fickle. It's, it's demanding. And I, when I was really working with Collodian, like shooting every day, like there's like five, six years in New York, it's all I did. Like I just photographed. Um, you, at least I did. And I think some people romanticize the process. Like I had a connection with my bottle of Collodian and my silver nitrate. Like I, I had to like, work with it to get what I wanted and sometimes it'd be those nights where it's like it's one in the morning and I've been shooting for five hours and I can't get what I want and you have to like make a deal with this with the spirit of Collodian to like just let me get this done 
you know, before I get too high from the ether or too right. tired, like, you, know, you force it or beg it to work for you. And to me, those moments are when the best things happen. You know, like, if, if today, if I could just be like, why can't I get this to work and, like, get on YouTube and figure it out, I probably just wouldn't be that interested. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, Jody, what, what's the best way for folks to see your work and, and maybe mention uh, some of the museums or, or other collections that have your works on display? My personal website's Jody, uh, jodyake.com. That's J-O-D-Y-A-K-E. I have, like, that side business where I build, like, camera stuff, and that's wetplateholders.com. I, you know, I don't have any shows at the moment, uh, I do have work here at the Portland Museum. Uh, I do have work at the Museum of Contemporary Photography. Just acquired some stuff. Uh, there's, that's at Columbia uh, College. I was just in this traveling show for like, it was up for like five years called the Dandelion Project. Uh, and it was about African-American fashion culture. And it was a giant show. And I had like four or five plates in that. And that traveled around a lot. And it just ended middle of last last year. I'm in the Sid collection in Brazil, if that's still around. I don't think it's around anymore. Um, Dancing Bear collection, that is William Hunt. He's a big collector in New York. He shows a lot of work around the country. I'm in his collection. Sometimes I pop up in a show. And you know, that's, that's kind of public collections. That's probably about it. Nice. I, I've seen some of those uh, dandelion images uh pretty unique perspective there on, on that fashion. was super fun i mean that was that was a new york thing like i had mentioned earlier like once it turns like commerce it gets kind of weird but i had was hired by a magazine to do a fashion shoot kind of based on james fantasy's photographs and uh it was the first time i ever really worked with like an art director and there were like 15 models and hair and makeup and the whole thing. And that was pretty amazing. I, I really do love that project. Some really beautiful fashion-oriented stuff, but done in a classical, you know, 1800s kind of perspective. That's great. Hey, Jody, I want to thank you not only for uh, sitting in and, and talking to me today, but also for just being that uh, inspiration and uh, motivator to folks that are somewhat new or you know have gotten into the process over the last decade and uh being able to reach out to you for support and you know being able to see some of the unique images that you've created over your uh, artistic career so thank you thank you again no thanks for having me yeah no problem thanks Jody. i hope you've enjoyed this week's episode and maybe even picked up some insights that will help you along in your own wet play journey I'd love to hear from you on who you'd like to have on in a future episode. So send me a message and follow our Instagram account at 10 questions with any feedback. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for listening to me, Chad Shryock, and my expert guests. And I look forward to you joining me again in the coming weeks for a new episode of 10 Questions. Questions.